ironically, to get better sales results, you have to focus on how well you take care of yourself in order to make it not about you when the time is right with your buyers, with your sellers, with your managers. Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast, where we interview top sellers and sales leaders to learn the different tips, tricks, and mental strategies that they use to create sustainable peak performance. Let's get rolling. Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast. Today, we get to welcome Carol Mahoney, who's the founder and chief sales coach at Unbound Growth, whose motto is, it's not about us, it's not about you, it's about your buyers. Their mission is to grow sales, increase revenue, create jobs, raise the level of respect for the sales profession using proven science. Carol has been referred to as the sales therapist by a Harvard Business School professor. She works with entrepreneurial MBA students at Harvard Business School on sales. She's been featured as a top 15 sales influencer in 2020 by LinkedIn, a woman to watch in sales by Sales Hacker, and a top sales coach by Ambition. For her, salespeople who have been brought through the Unbound Growth Coaching programs have gone on from on plan to perform at their best and close the largest deals in company history. Sales managers have coached their teams to achieve over 130% of quota while also increasing customer retention to over 98%. Sales executives have been able to cut their hiring time in half and increase their success of sales hires by over 90%. So really helping companies and organizations as well as entrepreneurial MBA students learn about sales and how do you create sustainable sales. So Carol, I'm so excited to have you on with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I got a chance to listen to your talk at Inbound 2020 this year and just knew that you were somebody that would be so valuable for our community and really resonated with a lot of things that I believe and have learned over the years and then a lot more. And so I'm really curious to learn from you. And the, the first question I always like to start out with folks on, on the show is, How'd you end up getting into sales or sales coaching? Kicking and screaming. Yeah, I would say I got into a kicking and screaming and, and resisting it almost every single step of the way. You know, I was actually brought up in a household with a used car salesman. And I was also brought up in a household of blue collar workers and entrepreneurs who had their own businesses, who had to sell something to feed their families. And so these two diametrics that I was brought up with gave me a passion for entrepreneurship and a passion for helping people, but at the same time, a complete disdain for sales. And this created a few challenges for me, especially as I went to college. I chose to go into marketing because I was going to make such awesome marketing campaigns that I would make salespeople obsolete. This was my thinking. And when I worked in my corporate jobs and ended up being a liaison between sales and marketing, it was because I was always told I would be such a great salesperson, but I resisted it because of what my perception of it was. So when I started my own business in our great recession, our previous bad economic downturn, was I was one of those people laid off and said, well, screw it. I'm going to start my own business because I'd always planned to anyway, like all of my grandparents did. And found out fast, the hard way, that I was going to have to figure out a way to sell. And I read every book. I listened to every podcast. I did all kinds of training from like Miller Hyman to spin to solution selling. I hired a business coach who tried to teach me how to cold call, ask my kids someday about having to listen to those calls in the background. 
And I still hated it, but I was doing it begrudgingly. And I had managed to scrape together enough clients. Now, at the time, I had a lead generation agency. I was doing inbound marketing. I was one of HubSpot's you know, first 100 partners. I had, I had not only drunk the orange Kool-Aid, I had a keg and I was passing around around solo cups to everybody else around me. I was that thrilled. But it was at that point that I was also miserable because I had clients who were not paying their bills, who weren't listening to what I was telling them, who I also was finding that no matter how many leads I would deliver to them, they were using the, you know, always be closing sales techniques on these inbound leads and couldn't understand why they were burning through them so quickly and why they didn't want to hear from them anymore. And so when HubSpot in the early days came up with the partner program for sales for agencies. I was the second person to sign up for it. And that process of hiring a sales coach, of getting clear on what my goals were, not like everybody wants to grow their business. Everybody wants to increase revenue. I was no different. But for me, what did that mean? So really digging into those goals, going through a coaching process. I can only say that that was what changed not just my results, but my entire perception of what sales was really all about, which is hence why I have the mission that I have now. So long story short, I got into sales as being an entrepreneur. I fell in love with sales because I changed my perception, my mindset, and therefore my behaviors and results. And it was kind of like, it was like a religious awakening where I wanted to start preaching that to everybody else is the only way that I can describe it. Or like, you've just found a way to lose a hundred pounds and everybody's asking you how you did it. But at the same time, it, I was realizing in my agency that if my, my mission has always been to help businesses to grow and create jobs, except if they're not getting the sales part of it right, that's never going to happen because you can't take marketing leads to the bank. So if my mission, which was still the same, which was to help those businesses to grow, what needed to happen because at this point, inbound marketing, there were a lot of agencies perfectly capable of doing that. It was no longer the cutting edge of things. Inbound sales and shifting the entire sales industry into one that's not just closing, but helping. That's where I wanted to be and grow. So hence unbound growth and all of the things that you mentioned, working with Harvard students and MBAs, it's like the idea that someone else could have that same kind of transformation that I experienced, that's the kind of things I think that will make the world a better place. I think that is such a awesome story coming out of marketing with the concept of how do we make salespeople obsolete <laughs> to then be in the, you know, full on the Kool-Aid of, hey, here's how we can really do sales better. Because I think that's one of the things that spurred me to even start the podcast is seeing this concept of the sales professional, of the person that's always helping opposed to always closing and helping buyers navigate this really challenging time where there's so many options, so many things that look good on paper. Say, how can you actually be a valuable resource for your prospects opposed to somebody that's just trying to slam them in the door? for your own good, where I thought it was really cool seeing, you know, customer retention numbers as part of what you talk about in sales, that historically is a point of friction between sales and support that now can be, hey, we're helping actually drive better long-term customers is so cool to see. And that's one of the other things that I've seen as one of the results of coaching was 
yes, we all, is the focus back on to the buyer. But in terms of retention, it's not just customer retention, but it's also if you're a sales leader or a founder, it's talent retention, keeping your top salespeople. Like if you look at the reports that are coming out from Deloitte and, and numerous other studies that show that those who get coaching on the job are more likely to stay longer and perform better and have a better perspective of the company. I mean, okay, customer retention, yeah, number one, but you also need those employees that are going to help you to continue to grow and are going to create that kind of a culture. So there's there's so many wins to it that it's a wonder that it's taking as long as it has for the idea of coaching as a corporate framework to take hold. So I'm glad to see it start to happen. So yes, retention is huge. And I think that, again, if you're buyer-focused, truly and all of your strategies revolve around that, then that should be one of the metrics that is most important. Definitely. And you just mentioned something that is a question I've been curious about for a while and would love to hear your thoughts around this apprehension for corporations to bring coaching in. And so mm-hmm. what do you think has been the, the hurdle or maybe what has changed in the last few years that has helped open the doors for, for coaching inside of organizations? I think first that there's been just not just sales coaching, but coaching in general. I think that coaching before was this perception of you only needed to coach if you were weak, if you needed help, if you were less than. And, you know, the perception has started to shift with the studies that have been done. But then also there's a lot of comparison to sports analogies. I am a huge Patriots fan. I am still a Tom Brady fan. And that's one of the things that I can appreciate about high-performing athletes is that they're open to finding out what their hidden weaknesses are in order to become the best performer that they can be. I think in a corporate sense, it's also there has been this perception that coaching is this fluffy, intrinsic, trickle-down effect that's a kind of fluffy, nice-to-have, not an actual revenue impactor. And so now as we start to align sales and sales coaching and sales training around scientific principles and data, and we're starting to able to actually tie that to revenue, it's no longer about the $15,000 that you spent at the yearly kickoff. It's about how much time are you spending in coaching and what does that look like? How is it helping to change behaviors, which then changes results? And being able to tie those things together. And So by using that science and that data, we're able to do that now. And that makes it easier for corporations to be able to know, if I'm going to invest X, I'm going to see Y in X percentage of time. And so a lot of companies that I've talked to, they say that, oh, our managers are our best coaches. They're our best talent developers. That's really what their job is. And from what I've seen, most managers don't have the time to actually do coaching or don't have any training how to effectively coach somebody outside of, well, I was a really good sales rep, so I can tell you how I did it. How are you working with companies or how are you seeing managers get that skill to actually coach or work with their team? So if you've never been coached yourself, you're not going to know how to coach because you've never been through that experience. And so traditionally, you're right. Managers have never had the time to be able to coach or what coaching actually is and how to do it has never been fully explained or trained or coached to them. Instead, it turns into a pipeline review where you tell them what they need to do next. Or it's you know, a performance review where they're you know, going to be, they do that every so often and they get coaching around that. And the other problem of it is, is that managers 
are the frontline captains and they're being pulled in a million different directions. And it really becomes a leadership, sales VP, CRO, and CEO responsibility to create the expectation that coaching is going to happen and that they're going to train their coaches, their managers on how to actually do that to create behavioral change. And you're right. Ideally, managers should be the best trainers and coaches of their teams, except that when you look at the data, and I, look, I use uh, data from Objective Management Group, they've evaluated 2 million sales professionals over 28 years on 282 different attributes, validated predictable. I'm going to use that data rather than the experiences of one or a couple of people. And what that data says is that only 7% of managers are actually coaching and have been trained on how to coach. 7% out of, I think, in the data that there's nearly 750,000 managers in there. So if you think about it, and now this data comes from not just what the managers are saying that they're doing, but what their team is saying that they're doing. So this is two-way feedback validation. And when you consider that, it's a devastating type of thing. And this is very recent. Then you combine the data with the fact like CSO Insights, I think it was, was saying that three hours of coaching equates to a certain percentage or 17% increase in quota per month, just with three hours a month. Now, the numbers that I see is that sales managers who have been trained on how to coach, and they spend at least 50% of their time coaching their team, their team has 49% more abilities to sell than those that don't. You take 10% increase in abilities and equate that to say, let's be conservative and say 25% of revenue. That's a hell of a lot more revenue, even if you consider it on a bell curve. There's ROI in coaching. There's ROI in training your managers on how to coach. And there's ROI in creating the frameworks that allow them to do so, which means that they're not getting pulled into product meetings and strategy meetings, which means that you know their, their pipeline reviews and their reports aren't taking up a huge chunk of their time. Hello, technology. And the other part of it is that it's not just a one-time event where you're training your people and coaching your people. It needs to be part of a regular cadence daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. And it also needs to be something where it's objective and it's individualized to everyone. You're not just giving everyone the same thing, even though it's within a framework. I could go on and on about all the ins and outs and whys, but there is. I have not seen a greater ROI in anything other than coaching, especially when you're combined it with sales enablement and training and everything else. Bottom done. And so do you believe the sales managers are the ones that should be equipped and are equipped to coach? Or do you think it's almost better facilitated from somebody outside? And the reason I ask that question is managers are going to have their own objectives, their own desires for themselves. And so I'm curious, how how do you think about that? You know, if you had asked me that question a few years ago, I would have said that managers probably can't because they can't be objective. They have a boss they have to answer to. However, now I think that it needs to be a combination or collaboration where you have managers who are dealing with the day-to-day, who are dealing with the, with the calls and so forth. But then if you can have you know, an outside coach who comes in as a personal one-to-one, not just sales coaching, but career development sales coaching, which I think is really kind of more in line with what I do because it's not just about what, the, what they're trying to do right now, but it's also about what they're trying to do in six months, 12 months, 18 months from now in their careers. Because of that very thing that you said, there are things that I have sellers and managers and VPs that they can share with me because I'm outside of their company. 
And maybe that's why I get called the sales therapist because people are able to tell me these things knowing that one, it's going to be confidential. Two, it's going to be in their best interest. And three, I don't have any stake. I don't have any horse in this race. I, I have no emotional attachment to whatever your outcome is other than the joy of seeing you succeed. There is that dynamic. And so if you can have that dynamic in combination with managers who've been trained on how to coach that complement each other that way, that's incredibly powerful and predictable success as well. So again, too, it also depends on the culture of the company. It depends on the environment that they're going to be in. It depends on who they're selling to. You know, sometimes I've gone into organizations trying to facilitate group coaching conversations that everyone's like, nope, nothing's going on here. Nothing to see behind the curtain. Everything's wonderful because I will get fired otherwise. So it really depends on, again, at the top, what is the expectation leadership is setting? Are they creating expectations for results, but not giving the support and resources for them to get there? That's going to create a lot of friction, a lot of conflict, and a lot of frustration. I've definitely seen that play out in some different instances before. Uh, so I, I could, <laughs> As I'm sure I, I could everybody can or attest to. <laughs> and that's the, the funny thing is there's so much similarity in what you've seen in sales and what you see in organizations. And to me, that's where we're at this pretty big turning point in how mm-hmm. sales is viewed, in how organizations operate around the development of their talent, the retention of their talent, and really building this culture that promotes the growth mindset, that promotes ongoing development, and seeing organizations that'll give money for continuing education, but many people don't use it still. Yeah, I call it the renaissance of sales, where... (sighs) And that is why I'm so excited to be involved in like the Harvard program where they're, where they're teaching MBA sales because, and, and all of us who were involved in that have, have said the same thing, like that we are so excited to be seeing the, the, a generation now being taught the things that we've all had to learn the hard way, really. And, and they're doing it in a way that brings in, you know, the best thinkers in the industry, as well as, you know, people like me who are in the field every day, working every day in different hundreds of different companies with this. So I think that we're in a renaissance of sales where we're seeing it start to get standardized, where we're seeing it start to get taught in the highest institutions, where we're using the psychology and the science of how people learn and change and make behaviors and make decisions and combining that with data of performance. I think that, you know, if you think about sales in terms of medical, think of the, med- the medical industry in the 19th century where they were seen as barbarians and mythical religious fanatics and everybody followed the teachings of one or two people. Sound familiar? Sales industry, spin selling, solution selling, band selling, blah, 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 blah. And now then you find that the medical community, when they started using, you know, dissection and, and, and the scientific process in their industry that it started to gain the respect it has today. That's where we are in sales. And if you think about it, how much more we were able to help people in the medical industry when we did that. Again, do no harm. Sales is all about helping people to make the decisions that are best for them. That's why I say it's not about me. It's about your buyer. Because when we do that, when we think that way, we become more trustworthy. And that's what sales is all about. It should be anyway. Should be. And I I think we're making steps there most days. I still talk to companies that you hear they're forcing their salespeople just to sell anything to just get a dollar in the door. But I think that's just becoming so much less effective that the numbers speak for themselves. And they they won't be around much longer. 
It's exactly it. You mentioned the the students that you work with, and I'm super curious, MBA students, maybe they've got a, a year or two, a couple of years of experience in the working world prior to going into this program. What do you find that surprised you the most about working with these students that, you know, was there a skill that you thought they'd have that none of them had? Was there, is there a gap that you see there or an area of opportunity that students have? What surprised you? This was the most surprising thing to me. Now, this is the second year I've done this with them. The first year we did it, this when I this was the surprise was in that first year because I mean, it's I was going into it like this is Harvard. These are the smartest people in the world, the the most diverse, the most cultured. And I think I went into it expecting that I don't know what I was actually expecting, but when I was like reviewing calls and talking with the students, I was like they're struggling with the same exact things every seller out there is struggling with. And it was the thing that struck me the most was that on a couple of the calls, and if you've ever listened to someone do a role play on a call where they, before they get on the call, they're just having an everyday human kind of conversation. And then they go into the role play and they slip on these costumes, buyer seller. And in their buyer seller costumes, each person acts as if Whatever they act as if whatever their perception of that role is, right? So I here I am seeing and, and sellers do the same thing as the Harvard students were doing is as they slip into the role of seller and they would start, you know, not asking enough questions, talking too much, making it all about themselves. And the same thing that you see in sellers when they struggle with their calls. And the thing that struck me was when I was talking with some of the students later. And I asked, so how did you feel the call went? And they were, well, I think I did really great. I asked a lot of questions here and, you know, they seem really bought into it. And, you know, I think it was a really great call. And so then I would ask them, you know, questions about, you know, you, you seem to struggle with asking these questions or what was their greatest need here and giving them some more pushback. And they said, well, you know, I just did what I thought a salesperson would do, which is deliver the pitch and the value proposition and go for the close. And so because that's what their perception of a salesperson was, that was what they modeled it after, and that is how they behave. Obviously, the more knowledge that they have, the more practice that they get, the better that they are at this, and you know, the more the committed that they are to making those changes. So that's one of the things that I've seen that that kind of carries through, and what I see in sellers and what I see in managers is that the changing a couple of different beliefs and mindsets about what we're trying to actually accomplish here and what sales is really all about, then suddenly the knowledge and understanding of getting authority and understanding needs and timelines and what's their budget for solving the problem. Like these things don't necessarily change. It's how we execute them that changes. Wow. That makes me feel good to hear that they struggle with the same things I do too. Uh, We're all humans, <laughs> right? You know, and, and if you think about it, like think back to Daniel Pink's book, To Sell as Human, seven out of 10 of us have a negative association with the word sales as used car salesman. Harvard, the, the most advanced entrepreneurial person that you know, the, the highest performing enterprise salesperson that you know, they, those thoughts are in there. Those beliefs are in there. Those perceptions are in there. And so when we look at how do we change those things, how do we change our beliefs, it comes down to how we change any kind of behavior in our lives. We identify what our personal meaningful goals are. We figure out what are our strengths that got us here, but what are the hidden weaknesses that are going to hinder us from getting there where we want to go? I, and it's funny because there's this kind of concept in coaching sometimes of do we focus on coaching to strengths or do we focus on coaching to weaknesses? 
And that's like trying to pick apart a person as if they don't make a hole somehow. But if you think about it, Superman's one of the is the strongest man in the world, right? But even he has a weakness that when that weakness is around, he is as weak as anyone else. And until he figures out how to overcome that weaknesses, he's not able to help anybody. So that's how we kind of need to look at it in sales too. And having that growth mindset, you know, that's one of the things that I love seeing in the MBA students is that, and, and in sellers that I work with and managers that I work with is that they want to get to the next level. They have a personally meaningful goal. They're willing to do whatever it takes. And they're so open to the feedback and applying it that they're going to start making those changes. The other part I think that they, they I've seen in the Harvard students and I see in those that actually are able to change their behavior in sales is that they're taking those small pieces. They're, they're not getting overwhelmed by, I need to do all of these different things, really focusing on what are the things I need to know and focus on in my weaknesses to get me to where I want to go. So it goes for all of us in anything, I think. Are you ready to commit and take your performance and fulfillment to the next level? Check out my core OS, where we work with sales leaders and teams to take their performance to the next level by creating championship operating systems and cultures with live Zoom workshops, one-on-one trainings, mindfulness for sales, and more. Check us out at mycoreos.com. There's so many questions that I want to pull out from there. I'm curious your perspective. Let's say you had a magic wand and could give all sellers or sales leaders one skill or ability. What would that be? Self-awareness. Self-awareness is something that I've heard brought up a bunch of times. And I'm curious... How do you get there? Because I just took an assessment internally and it rated self-awareness as one of the multiple competencies. And luckily it said I did okay on it. But I'm curious from your perspective, how do you find that people actually build this self-awareness since unfortunately we don't have a magic wand? (laughs) You know, I've, I've mentioned goal setting a couple of times, but it really does start there because when you can identify, and it's a process, it's not like you suddenly wake up one day and this is my personally meaningful goal and reason for being. Sometimes it's, most of the time, it's really just about identifying some small goals to start with. And personally meaningful, meaning it aligns with who you are, it aligns with your values, it it aligns with uh, an experience or a place that you want to be in the future that you can visualize and describe and you maybe even share it with someone else. So personally meaningful for me, for example, is I... I love, you know, traveling experiences. I love being out in nature. But one of the things that's really core to me that I've learned over time is to be independent, self-sufficient, and have freedom. Like those are the things that are important to me. In order for me to do that, I want to be off the grid. I need solar panels. I need a bigger garden. I need a bigger chicken coop. (laughs) The list goes on and on. There are things that I need or that I feel that I want that align with the values of who I am. You know, and I've worked with a, such a range from SDR to CRO to CEO, and everyone has personal, meaningful goals. But a lot of times, they align with our friends, our family. You know, we were talking before about how the how the pandemic has kind of brought us back to maybe our roots. Those are the kinds of things that personally motivate us. You know, when I first sat down to do personally meaningful goals, when I was working with my sales coach. I had a hard time with it because there weren't any real things that I felt like I wanted. And so it had, that's where my self-awareness journey, I think, started. Because what I realized in that first stages of it was that 
I don't really need stuff to feel content, but I do need to see the people around me happy. My kids wanted to go places and do things. My husband wants a garage. You know, he wanted a big wraparound deck on the house. Like these are the things that were going to make them happy. And if they were happy, I was happy. So that was where I started with it. But it became then a process of as I started to reach each goal, I had to start digging deeper and deeper and deeper into what was really personally meaningful to me and why. And how does that play out in what I'm trying to accomplish in my day to day? You know, the mission that I have for the business and the things that I do kind of go back to that having, you know, giving people the ability to have freedom, to have the skill set to move up in their organizations, to start their own businesses, to create jobs. These things create freedom for everybody. It also is a part of, you know, for me, I grew up in the woods quite frankly. And growing up in the woods, one of the things that was instilled in me is that you leave no trace or you leave it better than you found it. Leaving no trace being better in the woods. But so for me, I want to leave companies in better places than I found them. Sellers, managers, all the way up. Those things tie into my personally meaningful goals. And then the next stages of self-awareness is that really being open to where am I where do I need to focus on as far as what, what work I need to do? I went through a lot of different things. I took Myers-Briggs tests. I took one that I'm really loving is Sally Hoghead. Is, her test is called Fascinate. And yes, Hogshead is her actual last name. There's a whole story behind it. <laughs> it has something to do with alcohol. So I'm sure it was, it, uh, it, you'll all look it up now. But these are all like exercises that I did in self-awareness. And then, but for me really though, being able to grow the business, being able to help others to do the same thing, that's getting that sales evaluation that I did that I now use became really the biggest part of the self-awareness room because it was a little bit of a gut. No, it wasn't just a little bit. It was a big gut punch. But because I identified what was meaningful to me, I was willing to take the gut punch to figure out how to get there. And that's the same thing that I do with sellers, managers, CEOs, VPs is what's the gut punch going to be, but what's going to get you through the gut punch. And then it was really then a process in continuing to develop that self-awareness in little bits every single day, you know, listening to my own calls, having to debrief it with my managers, having to role play and then find those places where I felt really uncomfortable. You know, we are talking a lot about the self-care side of things in sales. As we go into the winter, you know, we're being even more isolated. I mean, that's what I mean about the self-awareness piece is that the more self-aware you become, the more you start to take care of yourself because, you know, you realize things like being on Facebook all the time is not good for you. You know, you realize that drinking one too many beers at night is going to make you groggy the next day. These are all the things that you start to realize this isn't serving me in the way that I want to be able to become. So we talk about the self-care thing. I think that that's one of the things that we, in building that self-awareness that we need to all focus on because as a seller, you can't be of service to your buyers if, you, if you've got all of this stuff going on with you, right? Our personal lives impact our professional lives. As managers, it's going to be really hard to be unemotionally attached to the outcomes that your sellers have so that you can coach them. If you are all hung up on everything else that's going on, you're stressed and burnt out at work and you're not taking care of yourself and you're just reacting. And as sales leaders, same thing is that when the pressure is coming on to you, how are you rolling that downhill to those that are looking to you for support? You're not taking care of yourself mentally and physically, and you're stressed out and burnt out. It's going to be a lot harder for you to stem that tide for them to be able to do the work that they need to do. So I think that's something that 
in building self-awareness. Ironically, to get better sales results, you have to focus on how well you take care of yourself in order to make it not about you when the time is right with your buyers, with your sellers, with your managers. That is so powerful. And I think that's counterintuitive to what so many folks have thought for so many years in sales. Yeah, you got to grind it out. You got to hustle till you can't hustle anymore. Well, you know what? Even high performing athletes have rest days. We need the rest days. You need the rest time in order to perform at your peak performance. Because without that recovery, you're going to get injured. You're going to burn out. And it's just not good. It's just not good. Yeah, you you said a line earlier before we started recording on on this concept of self-care as a way to peak performance. And I think that summed it up so beautifully because I went through a training called The Energy Project that talks about you have to move through recovery or refresh or renewal in order to get back to peak performance. But so much of what I feel like I've been trained on, what I've read, what I've tried to do, which was natural for me, was to just push harder mm-hmm. when things weren't going well or when something I need, you know, had a bad month and it was just push harder. And yet the stress, the anxiety, the nerves, all came through on the phone. And so one of the questions that I ask guests a lot is, how do you bounce back from the tough month, quarter, year? Or how do you coach teams and leaders to to bounce back from those tough months? And we've all had a lot of those recently, haven't we? Yeah. Definitely. This is going to be a weird answer, I think. But the the way that I've done the bounce back and the way that I have coached others to do the bounce back is that you can only control the things that you can control. You can't control your outcomes. You can only control your process. Focus on your process. Keep working on that because the results will come. The other thing that I, you know, for example, when we like bringing it back to even to self-care, like in those down months, that's when that self-care routine becomes even more important. It's kind of funny because if you were to look at the apps that I use throughout the day, my morning starts off with, I use Noom for like healthy and strength building and things like that. I've actually lost using Noom, which they, by the way, uses the same research and process that I use with sellers and managers to help change their behaviors they use for helping people use weight loss and making it stick. So that's why my LinkedIn profile says what it says. But if you look at how the day starts, I start off with, you know, I I look at my Fitbit. How much sleep did I get last night? How good of a sleep did I get last night? Because I want to know how that's going to then later impact my energy later on in the day. Am I going to need to take an extra break or do I, what is, what is going on there? And then I go in and I like, I have my yoga routine. I took my dog for his walk and I have mass, not so much mass because it doesn't happen the same way every day, but I have a morning routine that gets me through the day. It sets me up mentally. It sets me up physically. I'm calm. I'm cool. I've got all of the anxiety that have built up for whatever has been released. And I have my day planned and scheduled out. It's the process of it. And I, I try to detach myself from the outcome because I can't control the outcome. Ultimately, they're the ones that are going to have to say yes or no. But if I focus on the process of how I'm going to get from one step to the next and celebrate those small wins along the way, That's what gets you through the slumps and the humps because it seems like prospecting is a waste of time when nobody's answering the phone because they're not at the office and they don't have budgets. But if you're not constantly reaching out to people on a regular basis, when the time comes that they do have budget and they can respond, 
you're not the person they're going to be thinking of because you thought prospecting was a waste of time. You didn't focus on the process. That's the key to getting to that peak performance in sales and in self-care is focusing on the process. So many good ideas and thoughts there as... I know I may tend to avoid prospecting some days and you just rocked my world with, yeah, if I'm not reaching out normally, when the time's right, they're probably not going to be there. They're not going to hear from me. I'm not going to be top of mind. So that's a, yeah. a really powerful. And I love the morning routine as well as you think about the, the process that you use on your side as you work with sellers. And we've talked about goal setting some... I'm curious if you would share a little bit more on your goal setting process and how you use it with teams as in your inbound talk. I think you, you shared some really good nuggets that I'll definitely link to in the show notes for people to check out in its entirety. But can you just talk a little bit more about your goal setting process and maybe the specific piece that you have found that either most people miss or that has been most impactful in actually getting those goals to stick? So the part that most people miss is that they do goal setting in a silo. They lock themselves in a room somewhere and they're like, okay, I'm going to figure out what my goals are. And it then becomes this dredge of work and I don't know what it should be. And it should be fun. It should be light. It should bring you joy. So goal setting isn't this, oh, I've got to figure out, I got to commit to a number and then I've got to figure It's not about that. It's about What do you want your day-to-day life to look like with those that are closest to you in a month, in three months, in six months, in nine months, in 12 months? What does it look like around you? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Who are you with? What are you doing? Why is that important to you? That helps you figure out what's really personally meaningful to you. Maybe it's, I see myself traveling and hiking with my best buddies and we have no worries in the world because everything's being taken care of at work. Maybe it's, I see myself taking an RV and going to all of the national parks with my kids to go hiking and biking everywhere. You know, I've had people who have said, my wife has gotten in vitro fertilization and she's getting ready or we've just had our first child and we're going to travel to go visit our parents in Brazil so that we can bring the new baby. Like. That's some really personally meaningful stuff because these are the things that bring us joy, that bring us happiness. Those are the things that we want to focus on. Then it's like, all right, whatever it takes. If I, if I were to tell you that there was absolutely no way you could fail and you could get there if you just followed these steps, would you do all of the steps? Would you do whatever it takes if you knew you couldn't fail? Of course you would. That's what we all want. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's meaningful. That is where it is so powerful for me because so many people I talk to find goal setting is just this rote exercise that is not impactful for them, that isn't fun. And if you can make it fun, if you can get to those pieces of joy about goal setting, well, now all of a sudden, it's not this burden forced upon you, but an opportunity. So I'll, I'll I'll share a story with you because I, it's easy for me to share what my personally meaningful goals are, and then I don't have to worry about embarrassing anybody else, except for my husband. He's used to it, though. So when my husband and I were doing our goal setting, it's usually over dinner. There's usually wine, beer, probably now whiskey involved, and we're just like, you know what? What if we could? And we're kind of just like daydreaming together out loud. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if we did this? And wouldn't we then we could go outside and we could have this going on? Like, you know, I live on a lake in Maine. We 
we always talked about for years how awesome it would be if we could just step outside and have a wraparound deck that we could see all of the gardens that I've built and, you know, have like a second outdoor living room and open kitchen out there because we love to be outdoors so much. Well, that little dream cost me 40 grand. (laughs) But you can't imagine the amount of joy that it brings us every time we go out there. You can't imagine the amount of motivation it was for me to actually do the prospecting and do the things that I needed to do to get the business in to be able to accomplish that. So that's how I set goals with clients is I tell them, go have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine with your significant other or whatever it is that brings you joy. It doesn't have to have alcohol involved. I don't want everyone to think, I mean, I am Irish. I mean, come on. So (laughs) it's in your blood. (laughs) Yeah, it's in my blood, literally running through my veins. And so I would just share that everybody just have those conversations with those people that are closest to you. It's funny because I've had some conversations with sellers and, I'm, and I've told them, you need to have a financial conversation with your wife. And it was terrifying to them. And I'm like, if you can't have a financial conversation with your wife, how are you going to do that with your buyer? Those are the kinds of like, how, if you can't have this conversation with those that are closest to you about what's significant to them and what's meaningful to them and to you, how can you ever expect to find out what the compelling reason for your buyer is to make a change? This is why goal setting and personally meaningful goal setting is so important to CEOs and sales leaders. Because if your sellers can't do it for themselves, they can do it with your buyers. That is mic drop moment. That is so fantastic. I, I've got two questions to rapid fire at you while we wrap this up. And you've already talked a lot about this. So I, I don't know if this will be anything new, but what does success mean to you? Success to me... I think that it would be that I've made a difference, a marked difference in individuals and in individuals, really. Like that's that for me is success. When people come back to me and they say, I can't believe that I was able to do this. Thank you. And, I, and I'm like, I, I, I didn't do the work. You did the work. I was just the, the guide, if you want to say it that way. That's what success is for me, is that when, when, I have conversations and relationships with people that I've coached years and years ago, and they still come back and email me and give me updates and send me baby pictures. That's success for me. When I see companies that I've worked with that are hiring, that's success for me. And when my husband is like, you know what? This life doesn't suck. That's success for me. That's great. Uh, That is beautiful. And the last question before we figure out where we could find you, how folks can get in touch. What's your favorite skill or quality that you've seen with the leaders that you've had to work with that are the most successful? If I could bring it and pin it down to one thing is that they have a fierce open and growth mindset. And when I say fierce is that you've seen, or you've probably met those leaders who are like, you know, I know that I could probably be doing a better job here. And then they'll say that in private. But people who are fierce, open-minded, growth mindset leaders are the ones that will go on LinkedIn and say, I really screwed this up. Here's what I learned. And here's how you cannot make the same mistake that I made. After they've already either apologized or told their team, you know what? You're right. We screwed up here. We're going to fix it. This is what we're going to do. Please continue to give us feedback as to how we can do this and make this better. That's fierce, open growth mindset leadership. That goes beyond servant leadership to a force to be reckoned with kinds of leadership. Those are the kinds of leadership that people will follow anywhere. 
Wow. I cannot agree with you anymore. That is, I remember Brad Stevens of the Celtics came in and said the most important thing he's learned in the last 10 years has been the concept of a growth mindset. And Mm -hmm. that's saying something for a guy that's at a pretty high level. So I love hearing that and cannot express enough gratitude for what you've shared with us. Where are the best places for people to find you? I'll link to all this in the show notes. Uh, But where, where do you like to interact with folks? You know, it's funny because I've been taking a lot of time off of social media just on the self-care thing. But if you direct message me through LinkedIn, I typically respond within a day. If you email me directly, I also typically respond within a day. But you know, other places where you can go and listen and hear me on video and see what other clients are saying about us is on our website at unboundgrowth.com. And you know what? Stalk me on Instagram, stalk me on Facebook. You can try and stalk me on Twitter, but it's it's kind of one of those places that I avoid at all costs. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Carol Mahoney, thank you so much for sharing amazing tips, tricks, insight on how we can take care of ourselves to achieve peak performance, how we can set more personally meaningful goals, how we can start thinking about our process and not the outcome, even when things aren't going well. There are so many things that we'll have to recap for folks on here. I cannot wait to share this. And until next time, let's go crush it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jordan. Thank you. Any five-star reviews, please, wherever you listen to your podcasts, five-star reviews are always welcome and appreciated. It's thanks to help from listeners like you. This podcast can continue to grow and help others. If you found anything helpful in today's episode, please take a second share with a friend and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast today. Thanks. Thanks.